If you think the Democrats are the only perpetrators of election shenanigans, listen this week as our special guest Mark Pulliam describes his recent election to the Tennessee Republican State Executive Committee, only to be quickly removed by establishment tricks. And if that isn't enough of a treat as Halloween approaches, well, then you may be further outraged by how Republicans in Blunt County destroyed any pretense of honesty and fair play in order to maintain their precarious position of power. We also delve into the subject of financial institutions debanking of customers whose views do not align with the powerful. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. Mark ran for, he's down in Blunt County, south of Knoxville, and he ran for the Republican Party SEC, the State Executive Committee. And uh, there was no one on the ballot, and so he ran as a write-in. And uh, he won. And not only did he, he could have won with one vote, but he he got three over 300 votes as a write-in. And we should, since we're going, right, we're recording, yeah. we can just keep rolling. Remind us, because it's been a while, it's been 10 years since I finished my service as chair of the Republican Party. I forget who votes for those SEC positions. So the way that works in Tennessee, and that's actually defined by state statute as as one of our major parties, their state executive committee has, there are two state executive committee representatives per each Senate district. So right. we have 33 Senate districts. Oh, that's right. They're on the ballot, aren't they? They're on the ballot. They're on the voting ballot. On the vo- that's right. <laughs> John's, he's never going to live that down. <laughs> he's going to hate us every time he listens to this. Uh, no, that's, that's a strong word. John, John would never hate us. <laughs> of course not. So there are two state executive committee members for every Senate district. There are 66. And statute actually defines one is a man and one is a woman. And so, which which can be really interesting in today's world. In today's world, right? If depending upon how sideways the Republican Party will go, maybe they'll object to even listing it that way. Wow. <laughs> um, party number one and party number two, yeah. And so, with no one on the ballot, Mark ran as a write-in candidate, which, admittedly, I'm not sure has ever happened in Tennessee. But he won with 300 votes, and and you know, my contention would be based on different districts, that's as many or potentially more votes than SEC members get. Would normally get. Would even on a ballot. Right. So to get 300 people to literally type in your name, it's a big deal. Why was there no one no, on the ballot? There was no one. No no one pulled a petition to run. It just seems odd. Yeah. Well, so what was going to happen and what I think eventually did happen is... With no one in the position, the SEC then has the ability themselves to, to appoint. appoint someone. So anyway, Mark won. I'll let him tell the rest of the story, but uh, he gets kicked off the SEC. Why? Well, because they don't like that, you know? <laughs> they don't like, yeah, I'm really interested, Mark. Tell your story. So welcome Mark Pulliam to the show. Well, thank you. So as Gary uh, began telling the story, the... Uh, In early June of this year, it was brought to my attention that there was nobody who had qualified to be on the ballot for the District 2 SEC position, the male position. And that's not something that I had been following particularly. I assumed that whoever was holding the District 2 SEC position before would be running for re-election. But I checked, and sure enough, Nobody had qualified. Oddly, two women had qualified for the female seat. And the reason there were two women there is that District 2 and District 9 were sort of merged together as part of the redistricting. Mm. And both of the incumbents wanted to continue to serve. And so they were you know, fighting it out on the ballot. But no man had qualified. That, by the way, that explains why no one was running. I, I see. I'm getting. I'm getting a little bit of with, a picture now with the, with the redistricting. redistricting. Yeah, that, that's actually a good point that I I hadn't thought about. Yeah. So I did some research and uh, you know kind of looked into the write-in candidacy, 
which I have never aspired to be a, an elected official or to be a write-in, but I looked it up on the Secretary of State website, did a little bit of legal research, and found out that if you file a piece of paper called a Certificate of Write-in Candidacy in the counties where you want your write-in votes to be counted, and in District 2, which now consists of Blount County, Polk County, Monroe County, and a small part of Bradley County, you have to do this 50 days before the election, which was uh, early August, August 4th, I think, which made the deadline June 15th, then you could be eligible to have write-in votes counted. So I gave it some thought and I decided, you know, I moved to Tennessee in order to be politically active, in order to be in the majority. I had moved from Travis County, Texas, where Republicans are in this 40% at best minority. And I had been unsuccessful in sort of getting a foothold in our local party. So I thought this is an opportunity. So I went and I filed, you have to file it in person. So I filed it uh, with the election commission in Blunt, Polk and Monroe County. And uh, a lot of these election administrators had never seen a write-in candidacy certificate. But in any event, I qualified and promoted my candidacy. I have a group here in Blunt County, Blunt County Conservative uh, Coalition. It drew the attention of the Tennessee Conservative News, which ended up endorsing me. Uh, I was on the Tennessee Star Report. And uh, so it was not a stealth campaign by any means. And during the period from June 15th until the uh, actual election, nobody made a written objection as was the case, let's say, in the 5th Congressional District, mm -hmm. where uh, certain of these uh, potential candidates were objected to and were ultimately removed from the ballot. Nobody uh, from the TRP called me up and said, what are you doing? You know, you can't do this. This is irregular. And my analysis of the Tennessee Republican Party bylaws indicated that really the only requirement to be elected to the SEC was that you be a resident of the district, that you be a bona fide Republican, as it defined in the bylaws, and that you receive a majority of the votes cast by voters in that district. So, Mark, no, ob no objection, and you get elected, right? I get elected, uh, 302 votes. So the, trick, the and, tricks uh, began after the, the election, Secretary right? Secretary of State ultimately certified those results. So I was well, real, thinking real quick, because Kevin made a Kevin made a great point that I want to mention. So, you know, you stated earlier and I, and I remember the news like this was not a covert operation. I mean, you were very public about it. I know I saw it in the Tennessee conservative news, the fact that you were running as a writing candidate. And so I think Kevin's point is important because no one brought anything to anybody's attention or cared until after the election? Yes, I had heard rumors after. So the fact that I filed as a write-in got written up in our local paper, the Maryville Daily Times. And in fact, the election administrator was quoted as saying, Mark Pulliam is the only candidate who has qualified as a write-in candidate. And since there is no qualified candidate on the ballot, if he gets a single vote, he will win. That was in a newspaper of general circulation. And so the people in Nashville are sort of took the position later on that uh, they had no idea that this was going on until after the fact and that it blew their mind when they did find out. But I find that hard to believe because it was, it was publicly reported. Mark, let me interrupt for a second. Give us, it's important now for the listeners to understand the sequence. After you were elected, when did you first get wind that something was uh, wrong? I say that in air quotes. When did you get notice or think that something was funny? Well, it was about a week or two after the election. Uh, I had heard rumors that there had been an SEC meeting and that it was unclear who it was that said it, but that objections were being made, the nature of which was that Tennessee Republican Party bylaws do not permit 
write-in candidates to be elected to the SEC. A, a meeting of the SEC that, by the way, as a newly elected SEC member, you were <laughs> you were neither notified of or invited to participate in. That's correct. And I learned this from a newly elected member from uh, So another, another newly elected member was, was invited. invited. And did attend. And so she told me about oh, this, man. and I met her at uh, one of uh, Brandon Lewis's uh, the Freedom Summit, where I ran into you, Gary, in Nashville. And she said that, yes, there was this discussion and everybody was very concerned and it was like a a big to-do. So I wanted to kind of clear the air. So I sent an email to Scott Golden saying... Scott Golden, by the way, I just wanted our listeners to know, Scott Golden is the chair of the Tennessee GOP. So I sent him an email saying, uh, I want to introduce myself. I'm uh, this writing candidate who was elected to District 2. I look forward to serving. I've heard that there are some concerns about my election. I'd like to address them. And I'd also like for you to give me the names and email addresses of the other people that were elected so that I could congratulate them on their election. And in return, in response to that email, I got an email from Scott Golden saying, Yes, there are serious problems. And, you know, they begin with questions about whether you're bona fide. And also, you didn't pay the registration fee uh, to be a, a candidate on the ballot, even though I believe I might have the right to unilaterally nullify your election. Uh, I'm probably going to leave it up to the state primary board, which is something I'd never heard of before, to sort this out. Veiled, th- veiled threat, the- by the way. Just in case you didn't know, I have the power to remove you on my own, but I'm going to let a predetermined <laughs> decision happen, you know, without my fingerprints. Well, and I want to, and let's just talk, let's just camp here for a minute because I think this is important. Because I, I get this question a lot. And Kevin, you know, I mean, being here in Williamson County, we're in, you know, we're in the, um, we're in the fifth congressional district, which was. Highly contentious and in the news because of some legislation that was passed and some moves made by the SEC mm-hmm. to remove Robbie Starbuck and right. Morgan Ortegas and some other candidates from the ballot. Yep. So we, we've seen, in particular in Williamson County, this drama play out with the Republican Party quite a bit. And people, what I want to just throw out there, the challenge with all of this, the Republican Party is not a part of the government, Okay, so folks want to get twisted and, you know, believe that the Republican Party is subject to, you know, like public meeting laws, sunshine laws, sunshine laws, things like that, which they are not because they're not a government entity. They are a private organization. Uh, Additionally, folks will make the comment that, you know, what they're doing is unconstitutional, pulling candidates off the ballot, whatever. I just what I want to make clear to our listeners is that the Republican Party is, and I'm not, I'm not justifying any decisions they've made, but what I am saying legally, you got to understand they're a private organization. And, and at the end of the day, regardless of whether or not there is a election or not, they have 100% control over who is on the ballot carrying the Republican Party moniker. In fact, I can't remember what year it was. It was fairly recent, within the last decade, I believe. There's court precedent here in Tennessee. There was a Democrat that won, all out won the Democratic primary to be on the ticket. And the Democratic Party, for whatever reason, decided, even though they had won the primary, that this candidate (laughs) didn't like him, didn't like him. (laughs) And so they took them off the ballot and put on someone else to run on the general election ticket as a member of the Democratic Party, not the person that won the primary. And the court upheld the party's right to do that, which I don't necessarily disagree with. I I disagree with the fact that the party would disenfranchise those voters that, uh, you know, would disenfranchise a legitimately elected member of their party in a primary. Well, and maybe we should say it this way. Do you think the voters would take a different uh, approach or would, would refuse to vote or change the, the manner in which they vote if they knew going in? By the way, voters, please be aware that whatever you do in this election 
right, SEC or whatever the Republican uh, in the primary, doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, the party gets to choose. Do you think that would actually suppress the vote? And I, people would say, why am I voting? I think it would. And I and I do believe that most voters are not aware are of this. not aware of that. They believe legally, well, I voted. It's unconstitutional, mm-hmm. you know, for someone to take away my vote. Well, not not, not in a primary. In a primary. The, the party has absolute control, election or not, on who's on the ticket and who represents the party. So I just – I want to be clear on that, and, and that is why party leadership is so important, and it's why being involved in the party is so important, and it's <laughs> why it's important to have people – because, look, I've, I've been around – can't say that, you know, I know Mark – extremely well but i've i've been around you know mark on several occasions over the past two years and mark's a strong conservative we need voices like mark on the sec and he'll he'll admit perhaps that had he if he was on the sec today he might be a voice crying out in the wilderness Mm -hmm. you know but but at the end of the day we need to all understand that when we go to the polls in a primary and as we participate Participation in the party is important because who leads the party is is critical because the party at the end of the day has all the control and and they have as a private organization the legal right per the courts to have that control. So I just I – th- I thought that was an important point for our audience to understand. Your vote in a primary can be completely overridden by your party and that's that's been upheld by the court. So Mark – Everything you say is true, Gary, but – in many of the instances in which this, what they call intra-party housekeeping was exercised, it was exercised from the time that a candidate petitioned to be on the ballot, but prior to the election. And it's, that's what happened in the 5th Congressional District. It's relatively rare for somebody to be uh, to qualify to be a write-in, as in my case, where it is publicly available information that somebody has filed a certificate of write-in candidacy and no objection is made by any person until after the prior election. to the election right and so so the election takes place the secretary of state certifies the results of the election and only then weeks after the election do people in the TRP start grinding the, the wheel to nullify that. And I, when I ultimately complained to the Secretary of State, jumping ahead in the story about the nullification of my election by the state primary board, which is just a hat that the SEC wears, uh, that's exactly what the Secretary of State told me, is that basically we don't have any input into this that the Republican Party, which makes a big deal out of upholding the integrity of elections, can <laughs> unilaterally and ro- yeah. retroactively nullify a Republican candidate's election because that's considered intra-party housekeeping. But but I think that's the point I'm trying to make is that in this particular instance, you're right, the Republican Party makes a big stink about election integrity. And in this particular instance, when it comes to party primaries and elections of the state executive committee, the duty is not on the state in this particular instance. The duty is on the party itself to hold itself to its high standards of election integrity. And and I would agree with your assessment that in this particular instance, it has not. It has absolutely failed to do so, and the party itself has chosen to disenfranchise the votes of 300 people in your district that wrote your name in. So I no, I agree with that 100%. What I'm saying is, but it's all on the party. And, and unfortunately, the court upholds the right of the party to do that. But the, the fact remains, I, I believe wholeheartedly, the party was wrong to do so. Yeah. So when I did get this message from Scott Golden saying, yeah, there's questions about your eligibility to serve on the SEC, uh, and in particular, your failure to pay this $100 registration fee, uh, which is something that was introduced new this election cycle, I immediately contacted the TRP. The, I had spoken to the T- 
TRP's political director, Tyler Burns, the day that I submitted my certificate of right and candidacy to find out, am I liable to pay this $100 fee, which is normally the fee that a Republican candidate pays to have their name appear on the ballot, since my name was not appearing on the ballot. And he told me over the phone, no, you're not subject to that fee since you're a write-in candidate. So I didn't pay the fee. And then I find out two months later that they consider me delinquent in paying the fee. So I immediately went ahead and paid the fee. But ultimately, Scott Golden's position was it's too late to pay the fee. The fact that you didn't pay it on June 15th is fatal to your candidacy. I that was one of several issues yeah, well, they that were just, raised at various times. They were just looking for an issue. Yeah, at that, I, at that point. yeah, I would argue that's entirely pretext because if he told you what that he has the right to unilaterally remove you, and as Gary has just detailed, the party has the power to do this as the Secretary of State confirmed to you, Mark. I don't know why they even bothered with the pretext other than a guilty conscience. Yeah, trying to trying to justify. I mean, they were looking for some reason to justify their actions. I want to shift gears for a minute. So, so Kevin, like, you know, this is this hits home a little bit because what happened? What happened was, I may or may not get vociferous here as we, as we <laughs> you may or may not. As we previously you look like did. you're getting wound up. I'm qualif I'm qualifying. Uh, <laughs> you know, I got wind of what was happening. With Mark down in Blunt County and with the with the Tennessee Republican Party, who, you know, though I I am a Republican, clearly I've been very critical of um, our establishment here and the way they play politics. And uh, I got very vocal on social media about what was happening to Mark. May or may not have called the party corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> may may or may not called for uh, you know Chairman Scott Golden to be ousted uh, because of what he was doing. That may or may not have happened. But in any case, um, because of of the nature of which I publicly defended Mark and what was happening, I had been scheduled. This had. You know, when I was running for state senate, they had reached out. I, I went down there and spoke. This had been scheduled since March. I was supposed to speak to the Blunt County Republican Women's Group there some weeks ago now. But that had been scheduled for months. The, the chair of the group, um, who's resigned now, we'll get into that in a minute, had invited me. And I was really excited to go down there, of course, you know, every county party has an affiliated women's group. This is a legitimate Republican accredited group of the county. And I was very vocal in defense of Mark. And, of course, the party found out that I was going to be speaking to an official Republican group. Well, they didn't like that. And so the state party apparatus began its um, uh, cancel culture, you know, process quite frankly, is, is what it is, because God forbid anyone have a disagreement with those who hold the keys, you know, to the leadership of the party. It's their house, Gary. That's right. That's <laughs> right. No, And no one else's. And uh, so essentially, I was canceled, almost canceled, from speaking in Blunt County because of this, which I think hadn't, in this case, it was interesting. It, it they hated me as much as they hated Mark. I mean, it was just, it was a perfect storm, you know, which, which you eventually get out of all of this is the party is interested, seemingly, in my opinion, in only one thing. It's preserving its own power structure. And it has no interest in other conservative voices that may be coming to the table. And so there, there's a larger story here and some things that that Mark has found out about, you know, since then. And of course, What's interesting to me is since the party came in and canceled my speaking engagement with the women's group, what has happened since is that the chair of the group, Heather Fair, she resigned. I believe the treasurer resigned. The secretary resigned. One of the vice chairs, I think, resigned. And the entire membership, com the head of their membership committee, their recruitment committee, mm -hmm. and the entire committee resigned. Literally half of the Republican women's group resigned over this. Resigned because they believed in your right to free speech and That's, they wanted you to come. And because the Republican Party 
of the state had intervened and tried to cancel you, they said, we don't want to be part of this. Yeah, it was less about me and the fact that these women refused to be puppets of the state party. Mm -hmm. How dare you tell me I can't have a guest speaker, a... By the way, a qualified Republican candidate for office who almost beat the state's majority leader. Mm -hmm. And uh, somehow, you know, he's not worthy, you know, of speaking to a group of Republicans here in Blount County. I I applaud. I never asked for that, but I'm thankful. I applaud them for their willingness to stand up on just the principle of the thing. So, Mark, I want to dig into that a little bit. You know, you're you're in Blount County. You're in the, the thick of it. What's going on now in Blunt County? Because it seems to me, and you know, Biden even referenced it. You know, you know the remember the speech in front of the red, you know, building the CCP speech, <laughs> the communist speech, the Stalin speech, right. the Mao speech. Biden referenced the. Uh, there's two types of Republicans now. There's the MAGA Republicans, and there's the mainstream Republicans. So even the the left sees that there are clearly different camps of the Republican Party now. I mean, it's it's very visible. Mm-hmm. And I think Blunt County, well, many counties, but in, in this instance, embodies exactly what Biden was hearkening to, this division in the Republican Party. And that's that's sort of where I'd like to, to close out this end of our conversation is f- focusing on what you see, because I know you have a conservative group in Blunt County, and w- what are the challenges you see with being a conservative and also working to be a member of the Republican Party here in the state of Tennessee? Well, this episode was a very eye-opening episode for me and should be eye-opening for a lot of other Republicans in Tennessee who, who kind of assume that since they're in flyover country, that they're not really subject to the swamp that Donald Trump used to describe during his presidency. And for your listeners who want to kind of get a blow-by-blow about what happened in my nullification by the SEC and the whole series of events leading up to Heather Fair's resignation, I've written blog posts on each of those topics on my blog, Misrule of Law, which were reprinted in the Tennessee Conservative News. And I I sort of go into that in some detail. But to address your question, uh, what I've come to the conclusion is that the swamp is not limited to inside the Beltway. It's not just K Street lobbyists and uh, people in Congress, that the swamp really exists everywhere in the country, even in overwhelmingly conservative communities like Blount County, which voted 71% for President Trump in the 2020 election. And the nature of the swamp is that certain special interests, including but not limited to the Chamber of Commerce crowd, which seeks crony capitalism and, and favors from the government, has largely taken over so-called Republican organizations. Uh, And that is true here with our county party. Uh, It's true at the statewide level at the SEC, the statewide leadership of the Tennessee Republican Women Federated. And they are not really interested in what the grassroots has to say. In fact, they're kind of contemptuous of the grassroots in the same way that Uh, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell are contemptuous of grassroots conservatives in Washington. And so they use these party apparatus to serve their interests and to try to deny participation in those organizations by the grassroots, which should be people who control the party organization. The party exists for grassroots Republican voters and to uphold the Republican platform, not to serve the interests of a handful of elitists who have managed to get their hands on the levers of power. And so all of this can be explained, why you got canceled, why my election was nullified, is that the people in charge of the party do not want a conservative voice to be heard. They do not want the grassroots to be organized. They want them to continue to be disorganized and 
and voiceless and powerless so that business as usual can continue in the state legislature and in state government. And unless and until we turn that around and empower the grassroots to basically revolt against the leadership of the party, this is going to continue. And this is why I formed the Blunt County Conservative Coalition a year and a half ago and why grassroots activists all over the state, Rick Graham in Loudoun County and there's yep. groups up in Knox County and other groups are really the whole Tennessee stands and power groups. They are the voice of the grassroots, which everywhere else that I've ever lived in Texas and in California, conservatives have a seat at the table at the at the state GOP. But in Tennessee, we are not welcome and they will resort to almost any measure to keep us out. I know before we started recording, you were talking about how involved you were uh, in in Travis County, which for for our listeners, I, I've you know I've, I've lived in Texas a bit. Uh, that's Austin. That's that's the seat of the uh, of the state. So you were very involved in the Republican Party out there. And so I, something you said just struck me. So you're in all of your experience in being involved in the Republican Party across the country. You would say you've not experienced uh, this kind of uh, what exclusion exclusion exclusionary yeah. attitude of the party. Outside of Tennessee, you you are seeing that, man, I'm here in Tennessee, and the party here in Tennessee is much more exclusionary to conservatives than parties outside of California. Even California, right? Am I correct in that? That's correct. That's correct. And the party structure in California and in Texas, it's both designed to give the grassroots power. You have state conventions where delegates go to the state convention and decide what the platform is going to be. They directly elect party leadership. Here, everything happens at the top, and uh, the grassroots have very little uh, opportunity to get involved. The first thing we did, my wife and I, when we moved to Tennessee, was we contacted the county party to say, okay, where do we sign up? We'd like to be a a precinct chair. Which we we don't do here, by the way, in Tennessee. And that was the answer we got. It's like, well, we've got that covered. And I said, well, like, so where are your monthly meetings held? They say, we don't have monthly meetings. And well, what do you do? Well, you know, we uh, every four years we pass out some signs, uh, you know, in support of the president. At first, we thought they were just ill-informed or maybe not very energetic. But I've come to believe that this is by design, Mm -hmm. that The business community, if they have a county party that is basically an empty suit that leaves all the power in their hands, they get to anoint the candidates, they get to decide who runs for what, and uh, the grassroots, who they consider to be rabble, we're not entitled to to have a voice because we are not smart enough, we're not sophisticated Mm -hmm. enough to know. And even in Travis County, Austin often referred to as the People's Republic of Austin. <laughs> exactly. You go to a monthly GOP meeting there, and you know every conservative activist in Travis County is there. Some of them to my right, and it takes some work to get to my right. <laughs> and 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 that's that's the heart and the soul of the party. And here, the heart wow. and the soul of the party could be found at your local chamber of commerce. Oh, hello. The only thought that goes to my mind, that comes to my mind about that is this is a symptom of the lackadaisical attitude that we are a red state and a supermajority red state and have been for so long that, as Gary and I have talked about on this program many times, the legislature and those who run the party apparatus really do believe that, well, it would never happen in Tennessee. You know, these are good old boys here and they they don't think like the the Joe Bidens. They don't think like Gavin Newsom. And yet everything that they do demonstrates the same kind of fear. They're ultimately afraid of us. That's why they exclude. If they were if they were not afraid, they would engage in debate. But just as the left mm. doesn't want to engage in debate with the right, so within the right, the elitists, the establishment, do not want to engage in debate with us. So they, they try to do everything to exclude you, to disparage you to say that there's some other excuse for why they don't have to take your arguments seriously. Um, And to eliminate competition. A lot of what the Republican Party does in Tennessee can be explained in terms of incumbent protection. 
And one of the things that came out during this 90-minute Zoom call that was the substitute for an actual hearing before the state primary board is we went through all of these objections about the registration fee, how many primaries I voted in, et cetera. And then we got to the real essence, which was that my county mayor in Blunt County, a so-called Republican, had circulated a letter to certain SEC members that he considered to be amenable to his point of view, urging them to vote against me because I was, in his words, divisive. And if you want to understand what divisive hey, means, I've been called context, divisive. <laughs> Welcome to the club, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it's That's because a badge I of had, honor. Uh, criticized some of his actions as county mayor, including supporting a $12 million taxpayer subsidy for an Amazon warehouse here that nobody wants. And I endorsed his opponent in the Republican primary, who was the more conservative candidate. And the attitude is, if you are not in favor of the incumbents, if you are actually supporting the platform and urging conservative policies, somehow you're not a team player and you don't deserve to be able to play. And one of the SEC members said during this 90-minute Zoom call, he says, I've read your blog and I've seen on your blog that you are critical of people on your county commission. And I want to know what those commissioners would think if you got elected to the SEC. Would they view you as being their representative on the SEC? <laughs> and I had to respond the way it works is the county commission doesn't get to pick the SEC. Republican <laughs> voters right. get to pick the SEC. And as an SEC member, I would represent them and the Republican platform, not any particular incumbent who called themselves mm. a Republican. This idea that incumbents are Man, should be good. immune from criticism and that people who run against them are somehow the enemies of the party. I think people who stand for Republican principles are the saviors of the party. And it's the so-called Republicans, the rhinos who betray Republican principles. They're the turncoats. They're the enemies. And again, I will point out that only people who are afraid do that kind of thing, right? This notion of being criticized they collapse under any sort of criticism. You say that they have a, they're wearing the wrong color shirt, let alone question their uh, their view on liberty and their view on order. I, I just I, I know we have a problem and and it's a problem that we need to think strategically about how to overcome because they control all the levers of power uh, and prevent us from getting in the position to prevent this from happening. But a note of encouragement to all of our listeners, we must remember that, we are the ones that they fear. We should not be afraid of them. All of these shenanigans in which they participate give evidence that they are afraid of us, which means that we are right and they are wrong, and they know they're wrong. And so they have to resort to tricks to maintain their power. Well, and the fact that Gary came within 700 votes of taking out the Senate majority leader, even though he was a four-term incumbent and outspent him four to one, that is what terrifies them. Because they know if the grassroots are awakened and informed that the status quo will not last. Well, remember, too, Gary's margin of victory was 700 and change, right? Yep. Which was only one third of the amount of Democrat crossover votes, 20, <laughs> 2,200. So we know who won the election among the, the Republican base, but that's a conversation for another day. Mark, we're running short on time. We really appreciate you coming on the program and, and hope that people get a a more personal, from-the-field taste of what's going yep. on in their own party. We do appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Mark, appreciate you, brother. So, Gary, we don't have much time to, without making this one super long, do we? Go for it. Well, um, I just want to I want to address one little thing. We, we don't have time to go and break more dishes in the China cabinet today, but I... I did want to bring our listeners' attention to one story, one national story, and this has been bubbling under with a lot of organizations lately. Oh, by the way, I should have given a transition. Mike Boozer wears glasses. Now we can transition. <laughs> All right. Uh, debanking. That's not the banking, but debanking, right? Just like deplatforming someone. Yeah. So uh, this is from the Christian Post, and it was dated earlier this week. Uh, religious nonprofit group led by former U.S. Ambassador Sam Brownback 
says Chase Bank closed its bank account. So the essence of this story is that in April, the National Committee for Religious Freedom, which is a 501c4 political action nonprofit whose mission is, quote, defending the right of everyone in America to live by one's faith freely. So it's not even a Christian-specific organization. It's very broadly a religious organization. Open an account with Chase Bank in April. Sam Brownback is the chairman and former U.S. ambassador-at-large for international religious freedom under the Trump administration, wrote in the Christian Post that they had very positive experience with the bank, but less than three weeks after it was opened, Chase informed them on May 6th that the bank would be closing their account. (laughs) When they investigated this, the bank said, it's secret, it's irrevocable, and that's all the information we got. By the way, I know it gets worse. Brownback, by the way, for our audience who don't know, he was U.S. Senator and Governor of Kansas from 2011 to 2018. So this isn't just some ordinary guy. He isn't some T.C. Mitts, right? (laughs) After Chase employees initially told the organization that they were prohibited from providing any explanations for the move, the bank later said that they failed to provide the requested documentation within the required 60 days, even though the bank account had only been open for 20 days. Wow. Now, listen to this. A representative from Chase finally said, and by the way, he only identified himself or herself as Chi-Chi. That's right, Chi-Chi, C-H-I-C-H-I. Sounds legitimate. (laughs) Contacted the organization and said that if they could provide some further details about their political activities, we may consider reopening the account. Wow. Listen, listen to this. It may, found, it may sound familiar to you. The bank wanted a list of donors who had given more than 10% of the operating no. budget. They wanted a list of candidates that the organization intends to support and the criteria which the organization uses to decide whom it supports politically. This is exactly what I went through with the IRS. The government directly saying, you can get a nonprofit status, C3 in my case, for linchpins of liberty if you answer these 95 questions telling us, among other things, what are the names of the students you're mentoring? What are their addresses? Talking about minors, wow. right? Who have you invited to your events? Give us the, the content of their speeches, every post you've written. Who are your own political mentors, right? So they went out after us very aggressively. Well, when I saw this report... It just gave me that same sinking feeling. Wow, the same people are writing these letters for the banks. And our Republican state legislature here in Tennessee, by the way, fully supports this type of <laughs> Getting transparency. Getting into business with oh, the yeah. banks. Absolutely. So what's interesting is we hear, the, we hear our political enemies and really the ignorant constantly chastising us for five, six, seven years now saying that we are fascists, Right. They have no clue what the definition is. This is fascism. When the government uses private businesses to carry out its aims that they could not not otherwise do directly like they tried to do against me, this is fascism. So can you imagine, I'll end with the, I'll skip to the end of the article. He says, if they can debank this organization, a multi-faith religious nonprofit, what happens when they start debanking pastors and Christian business people based upon their ideas. It's happening, ladies and gentlemen. It is happening right here, right under our noses in the United States of America, that your ability to to work, we already found that during the Great Rebellion, which some people call COVID. Um, <laughs> I, I'll go into that another time. I, I've decided never to use that term again because it's not, it gives into the entire premise of that. We, we, we buy into their argument. Yeah. Yeah. We will not be able to have banks right? You'll not be able to travel. You won't be able to participate in ordinary activities that those who are politically favored will be able to do. And if anyone questions the reality of this, just look at this case of, again, former Senator and Governor Brownback and his organization being debanked by Chase. And the irony, the reason I mentioned Chi-Chi is the name of the person that responded. Notice how the customer is required to provide everything, not only about the company, but about their political views and who they support and who their supporters are. But when the bank responds, can't even give you a last name, right? right? 
I'm Chi-Chi. I'm Chi-Chi. Chi-Chi. Tell, and, and it's secret. Remember those words? <laughs> Literally, this is a quote. Secret and irrevocable. Yeah. And not only does Chi-Chi not have a last name, she doesn't have a phone number, she doesn't have an email address, you know, she has nothing. No way to contact and and you've got to think, you know, what's interesting about you bringing this article up, actually, this this is sort of ESG, you know, in yep. practice. Yes. And, you know, I wasn't aware of this particular instance. Are you aware? So I think this broke, man, was it yesterday or two days ago on Twitter? Candace Owens broke the news that Chase Bank has debanked Kanye West. And, I just saw that yesterday. Yeah, yes. so... I mean, you know, Chase seemingly is looking for, you know, people who in some way, in a mainstream way, are pushing back against the progressive globalist narrative, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, and literally debanking them. So as as Yeezy, you know, his Yeezy brands, Ye yeah. West, has been critical, you know, of the left and has been outspoken against BLM and these types of things. Um, or I guess he was found, you know, attending... A Candace Owens event with a uh, a White Lives Matter shirt. Oh God! Yeah. Uh, you know they they literally are are debanking this guy. And I mean, I would have to imagine that you know Kanye West and Yeezy Brands has some significant cash, which goes to show you this is not a business decision. Right. I was just going to say that they are more <clears throat> concerned with the ideological agenda at this point. This is not capitalism, friends. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're not even concerned anymore about making money. These are not free market decisions. These are solely ideological decisions now being made that are going to have wide impact. And I, I have to believe, though, that these banks are so confident, overconfident, that with states and the federal government encouraging the passage of laws that encourage this, Right, you get higher points, and and um, we want to encourage ESG by by corporations. I imagine that a number of their board members justify they're doing this because they say, "Look, everybody's going to be required to do it. Where else are they going to go?" Right, and so because they can force it, I think they're going to get eventually a rude awakening. It's not going to happen overnight that they lose all of their assets, but decisions like this that are based ideologically always ultimately fail and it, and they all of these banks will fail that do this i guarantee it i can't tell you when it's going to happen but mark my words we're recorded these banks who participate in this unlawful inhumane ungodly acts against humanity you will fail yeah and i know we're running short on time but as we close you know we've been very I'm bringing it up because we just mentioned DSG. We've been very complimentary recently of the new attorney general here in Tennessee, yes. Jonathan Scrimetti. I, I just want to I just want to say I attended an event this morning where he was there. Um, you know, had about I don't know fifty or so people there uh, being interviewed in a small group here in Williamson County. And, and I just want to say, I boy, I, he's very genuine. His language is very appropriate, strong constitutionally. I, I'm, I, I was very impressed. So he didn't give you platitudes? No, no platitudes. I, I was, you know, I was looking, I was really looking for something this morning to be critical of. of like, I, I've been too positive on this guy. Mm-hmm. I need to be, and I, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm still highly encouraged. And so I got to ask the last question of the morning and I brought up, I said, look, I, I think, no one's talking about ESG. The fact that you – and he he shook his head in agreement. He was very excited that mm-hmm. I brought it up. And I said, you know, you were very public in not only talking about ESG but but talking about how corporate interests are overtaking the right of the people mm-hmm. to make policy through their representatives. You know, I said, you've been very clear that – as the attorney general, your job really is to defend the state. But I said, how will you, being your passion about this, how will you be able to use your office to defend individual interests, defend the rights of individuals against the usurpation of their rights? And his answer? His answer was, I was encouraged. He said, well, he's like, he's looking for ways to, att-. he said, well, actually, you're right. And I, you know, I do defend the state. He said, but the, the state because ESG in terms of individuals comes into the realm of consumer protection, as the attorney general, I 
am endowed with power to protect the interest of consumers in our state. And um, so I, I just I'm going to say it, it seems to me my interpretation of his answer is that he as an attorney general in this state, he is looking for ways. Again, my interpretation of his answer to me is that he is looking for ways as a state attorney general that he can use, that he has authority to, to use, to push back against this ESG agenda by corporate interests uh, here in the state of Tennessee. I was, I was, he did not slough it off, you know, just whatever. He, he, he was very straightforward. I was highly encouraged by his answer. Yeah, and you could tell that if you go back a couple episodes when we discussed his letter, you could really see that in how he wrote his letter and by the fact that he went out and led, what was it, 17 other attorneys general? 19, I think. 19? It, was, it was a total of 20 in right? the letter, yeah. So that's leadership. He wasn't just yeah. out on a limb and saying, I'm just going to go say this and be like, a, a, you know, a bomb, right? Yeah. He went out and was very strategic. So maybe... You think we can get him on this program? Wouldn't, oh, he, wouldn't would, he be a great interview? He would be a great interview. I mean, I, I his again, his views on the Constitution are strong. As an attorney, he has a civil rights background. So, I mean, his his background as, a, as an attorney is defending, you know, individual liberties, the rights of people. So even though his current position is, you know, to defend the state as an mm-hmm. attorney general, he, he very much seems to me to have the, the constitutional mindset of liberty and and protecting the individual rights of people. And so, again, I you know, whatever. The proof will be in the pudding, but I asked him a very direct question, and he, he did not really uh, skirt it. He gave a very direct answer. Very encouraging. The only thing better than that, and I say that a little bit with air quotes, is can we go out of this episode— I'm looking for my penguin's goal horn. Why, okay, set because, this up, please. What, because what is happening? Because tonight, the pe- now, by the time this <laughs> airs, it will be another week into the season. Penguin's first game of the season is tonight. So, uh, Mr. Producer, if you go back to Jesus and the Meteorologist, you can probably pull up that penguin's goal horn. I, I it's the most, have by the no way, idea what is happening right it now. It is the most beautiful goal horn in the world. <laughs> every, every hockey team has a different sounding goal horn. Wait a minute, I want to confront, is it so... Because again, yeah, I'm, I'm in new territory here. I'm not a not a huge sports guy, but I'm definitely not a hockey guy. But so every single NHL team has its own individual goal, goal horn, horn yep. sound. Yep, they're all, and some are some huh. sound like sick cows. Some <laughs> sound like a steamship, a steamboat. There's probably fifteen, probably half the league that they sound kind of generic and the same. But the Penguins goal horn is unique. Hmm. It is mellifluous. I'm going to look that one up. <laughs> I expect to be hearing lots of those tonight. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. <laughs>